Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. Coming to you from fabulous Las Vegas. The right side is the winning side. The late move is the correct move. Sports betting capital of the world. We all know when a sharp like me weighs in, the lines move. It's a party for your ears. (laughs) This is The Buffet with Chad and Scooch. I want to buy that guy a buffet. Here we go. Welcome to The Buffet with Chad and Scooch. It is a massive week this week. It is Masters week. And in the betting community, Masters is a huge opportunity. There are millions of props to play. There are matchups to play. There's a lot of DFS going on in the Masters in uh, Masters week. This week is the first week for our newest employee who happens to be the premier golf writer of his generation. Jason Sobel is on the line. He has been hired by the Action Network to cover golf for us, leading ESPN after about two decades. Jason, I'm really happy you're on the phone with me. I'm really happy you're writing for the Action Network. I'm really happy you're covering golf for us. How you doing, man? <laughs> Chad, I'm great. Thanks for having me on the pod, of course. On my first day of work, I really couldn't say no to you, literally. Uh, yeah. But no, it's... Uh, uh, dude, I am so excited to get on board and get get working with everybody. Uh, you guys have impressed me a lot just in the kind of run up to uh, to me working here, and, and now that I'm actually on board officially, I uh, can't wait to get going. We're going to do some great things, so I, I'm really excited about everything. And what better week to get started than Masters Week, right? Boy, the timing on that was nice. Yeah, we just have to figure that out, huh? Yeah, we're, we're, we're geniuses like that. But listen, yeah. you've got a seriously legit resume. Um, four Emmys, eight-time golf writer of the year. What? I, I, I'm going to correct you on that, Chad. You, you sent that. You asked me for, for some credentials to send out to the company in the company email. I said I, I had won eight Golf Writers Association of America awards over the years. And, oh. and somehow the company email went out, and I was the eight-time golf writer of the year. And I'm just like, oh. I mean, I'll, I'll take it. Uh, there's not yeah. actually a thing. So I, yeah, well, I would say like, if, there, if there was one of those, that maybe I would have won it, but uh, definitely not eight times. Listen, we're in the age of hyperbole. <laughs> so I'm totally okay with that. And by the way, it's not like anyone's checking those company emails. So I think we're in, 
think we're in really good shape. And you've also won four Emmys, which is pretty cool. I, I did. I always tell people, I mean, I, yes, I have Emmys. Uh, and, and my wife has four Emmys. She worked at ESPN as well. So we've got eight Emmys sitting up on this, like, big shelf up in our house. Try not to show them off too much. They're up really high. Um, so so you got to look up to, to actually see them. People always think they're fake. Uh, but uh, with a caveat again, and, and I'm not trying to downplay this. I'm not trying to be humble. But uh, I won for working on the – the TV side of the ESPN, I was a uh, production assistant, an associate producer, highlight supervisor, producer, uh, uh, kind of ran the gamut when I was on the TV side. But I, I won because SportsCenter won for best show and uh, something else won for best show. So it, it wasn't like I did anything. The shows were going to win anyway, and I just happened to, like, ride their coattails and get the Emmy. So, uh, again, it sounds really good in the company email when you're introducing me to everybody, and, and it's all true. But, I, I mean, uh, you know, I just kind of – I, I just kind of hung out and uh, did some work every once in a while, and they handed me a big trophy. I thought uh, the Oscar you got for the technical work you did uh, in the Legend of Bagger Vance was – I thought that was the coup de grace. Coup de grace. I, I'm still going for my EGOT. Is yeah. it an EGOT? Well, when you, get you all know, as, as people probably know – you and Lin-Manuel Miranda were instrumental in both the book and the score for Hamilton. If you heard me sing, they would take away any award that I had won already. They'd say, I, I don't care if it was for writing. Like, you, you don't deserve to have an award uh, based on your voice. I actually kind of thought it was amazing that when you were nominated by the Independent Party for President of the United States, <laughs> you ultimately deferred to Ross Perot. And I thought that was a class act. <laughs> there are a lot of people out there who might wish that I was the president right now. But, um, yeah, no, just just another loss in my career. Just another loss. Uh, I well, had listen, plenty of them. It happened whatever, whatever awards you've won, real or imagined, that I have given you credit for in the past 24 hours, I have no doubt that uh, over the next several, many, many years, uh, you're going to be winning them in spades for the Action Network. At the very least, you're going to write really good stuff and make people smarter um, and bring in an audience that uh, is excited to continue to follow you. And most importantly, they're going to want to follow you as we get into the Masters. Um, and you posted your first piece went up late last night, all about Tiger. And this is what I loved about the piece is – you did two things really well. You examined how Tiger's uh, failings as a player actually um, get absorbed by Augusta, and you did mm -hmm. it through the eyes of Phil Mickelson and Jordan Spieth, which is not easy to do, um, but that's a testament to sort of your connection. So explain what you did in the piece. Well, I think that over the years, uh, players have become accustomed to being asked about other players, certainly, but uh, more specifically about Tiger Woods. Uh, and there's sort of two ways you can go about asking another player about Tiger Woods. One is just sort of brutally, bluntly hit him over the head with it and say, hey, so Tiger's playing now. What do you think? And just get right in with the question. And for the most part, guys will answer it. I mean, it depends on the time of day, depends on uh, the mood, I mean, if a guy just walked off the golf course and shot 79 and you say, hey, what's up, buddy? Can I ask you about Tiger's round today? You're probably not going to get a very thoughtful response. But uh, there's another way of doing it, a more subtle way. And 
uh, that's how I went about it in this case. And that's, uh, I asked uh, Phil Mickelson and Jordan Spieth, each of them past Masters champions, sort of a Tiger Woods question without ever mentioning Tiger's name. And the, the question I asked each of them was, can you succeed at Augusta National without having your A game off the tee? And to my surprise, uh, a little bit, uh, each of them basically cut me off and without hesitation started answering and said, yes, absolutely. Uh, unlike a lot of golf courses on the PGA Tour these days, driver is not the most important club in the bag at Augusta National. It's, it's more of a second-shot golf course, obviously. Uh, your wedge game needs to be terrific. You need to be able to make some putts. Um, all of that stuff is very important. Um, but driver, be, because they are wide fairways, there really isn't any rough, uh, you can spray your driver around. And I thought, Chad, it was really interesting that Jordan Spieth said, driver is not the most important club in the bag, but you have to hit driver. You can't go out there and hit three woods and irons off the tee and expect to keep up. He said, you need to move it out there. You need to be able to give yourself a chance to go for the par fives and two uh, to pick up some strokes or at least not lose any strokes against the field. That said, if you spray it out there, as long as you're moving it, as long as you're hitting it a decent distance, even if you're spraying it, you're not going to get yourself into that much trouble. Long story short, or maybe not short at all, this plays right into the hands of Tiger Woods, who has struggled with only the driver. I mean, he looks uh, dead on with his iron so far this year. His short game might be as good as anybody right now. I, I think his, his uh, wedge game around the greens is really as good as it's been in an awfully long time, as good as anybody else's right now. And his putting, especially from inside 10, 12 feet, has been very strong. So really the only club in the bag – as effective as the driver, he's got a little bit of a two-way miss going at times, but if he's going to miss the ball, he can miss it this week and still succeed at Augusta. Do you feel like um, the way they build courses these days is toward, geared towards accentuating the use of the driver off the tee? It is, and that's the only way that I think a lot of course designers and less less about course designers, more uh, the officials that set up the golf courses, it's the easiest way to counteract the fact that so many guys out there now are 6'3", 6'4", 220, built like NFL linebackers. Uh, you look at a guy like Dustin Johnson or Tony Finau or Gary Woodland. I mean, these guys look like they would be athletes in other sports, and yet they're playing golf, and, and the trend is only going to continue in that direction. And uh, within the golf industry, within golf circles, um, the, the talk of the ball rollback has been one that's uh, heated up over the last decade, and there are a lot of proponents for uh, rolling back the golf ball and uh, making it so that Dustin Johnson's normal 320-yard drive would only go, let's say, 285 yards. Uh, I'm not necessarily in that camp. I understand that camp very well. I think that uh, the game loses something. I mean, I think that uh, if you went from guys uh, hitting home runs in baseball all the time to all of a sudden, hey, we don't have the juice ball anymore and we're having three to two games, uh, you might lose some interest in the game because people like seeing home runs. And I think people like seeing 320-yard drives. and They like seeing these guys being able to move it. All of a sudden, you say, hey, we're going to scale that back. Okay, it makes the courses uh, less obsolete, but it also renders the players sort of more regular Joes as well. And, and you don't have that sort of shock and awe factor that uh, I think we get on Sunday afternoons watching some of these guys being able to move it. So uh, that said, 
Uh, yeah, I, I think that, you know, obviously advanced analytics have shown us that uh, driving the ball um, off the tee is as important as um, anything in the game. I, I had a dinner a couple of years ago with Eduardo Molinari, who has played in the Ryder Cup. He plays uh, regularly on the European Tour, and he, is, uh, he went to college for engineering. He's a huge proponent of analytics within the game, and he is uh, – He's also uh, become very good friends and works with Mark Brody, who has, uh, has written a few books about golf analytics and found that uh, the old drive-for-show, putt-for-dough refrain isn't necessarily a, a truth in the game. And he's found that the long game is better. And the, the best thing I've ever heard is what Eduardo Molinari said to me. He said, look, I, I'm a professional golfer, and you are a 10 handicap. He said, if I gave you a choice of three different contests, which would you rather do? He said, one of them, let's both go to the tee and see who hits it furthest. I said, well, of course I'm not going to beat you. I'm never going to hit it further than you, no matter what I do. So, okay, the second contest, let's put a ball down 150 yards out in the fairway and see who gets as closest to the pin. Now, I said, okay, once in a while, maybe I hit one closer if I really hit it well, but for the most part, I'm not going to beat him. And then he said, now let's put a ball 10 feet from the hole and let's take putts and let's see who makes it. I said, well, at least in that one, I have a chance. At least I have an opportunity to go out there and beat him in that. And he said, exactly, the further you get away from the hole, the more uh, disparate the analytics show. And that's where um, the guys can win these golf tournaments uh, by, by hitting the ball better off the tee. And that's kind of what the numbers show. And I thought that was a good way of, uh, of him putting it sort of in layman terms. All right, that's a great segue to – my next question, because one of the pieces you're going to have coming up this week on actionnetwork.com. And by the way, if you want to follow Jason, follow him at Jason Sobel, T-A-N on Twitter. And if you use the code Sobel, S-O-B-E-L, you get 20% off a year subscription to the Action Network, actionnetwork.com. Use the code Sobel, get 20% off. Follow him at Jason Sobel, T-A-N. So what are the other pieces you're going to have coming up this week? Um, you're going to rank the field 1 to 87. So take into account everything you just said to me. Um, give me a preview of what that ranking looks like and how sort of mid-range game, short game, long-range game plays into the ranking as it relates to form and the players at Augusta. Fold all of that into this conversation. I I will give you my lead, Chad, which is that there's no secret formula at Augusta. I mean, you can really say there's no secret formula anywhere. But, you know, we hear that driving is so important in the game. You've got to drive it long and straight now to succeed. That's what the analytics show. And we hear that Augusta is a second-shot golf course. And so you've got to be able to – hit your irons onto the green, hit them long and, and high and soft, obviously, to hold those, uh, those firm greens. And then we also know that chipping is important because you're not going to hit every green, and putting is important. And, uh, of course, mental acumen and experience are important. So it, what I'm getting at is there's no magic formula. There's no one thing where you say, this is what players need to do well, and that's it. And so what I always fall back on, especially for the Masters, is – I look at the first three months of the year, and I, I think we've found over the years that the Masters has almost been a reward, probably not the right word, maybe a celebration of those players who have played the best over the, last, over the first three months of the year. And so you may not have 
predicted Sergio Garcia to win the Masters last year. But if you went back afterwards and looked at his record over January, February, and March, you would have said, yeah, he was trending in the right direction. Uh, he absolutely did not come out of nowhere. And, and when doing these picks and, and looking at players, I basically looked at the guys who, over the first three months of the year, have proven themselves to be in form and playing some good golf. And, and I think those are the guys who we look at. So it, it's no secret. I mean, Rory McIlroy is coming off a victory at the Arnold Palmer Invitational three weeks ago, uh, I can't imagine that Rory McIlroy is going to all of a sudden be completely out of form and show up at Augusta uh, like he can't hit the ball in the fairway and can't find a green. So I think Rory McIlroy is a, a very good choice. You look at Jordan Spieth, who just had an excellent finish, uh, I believe his best of the year, at the Houston Open. I'd say he is trending in the right direction. In fact, he's sort of this uh, interesting case uh, in that uh, and I've talked to, with him about it uh, multiple times over the years, and the, uh, the best players in the world always say they want to peak four times per year, of course, for the major championships. And, uh, and Jordan, in February, wasn't playing his best golf, and March wasn't playing his best golf, and everybody's critical of Jordan Spieth saying, why aren't you playing your best golf? And he's sort of buying into that criticism a little bit, but internally he's got to tell himself, I don't want to play my best golf now. I want to save my best golf for those major championships. And I think he's building right into that momentum. So uh, he's another guy that I look at. And then I look at some of these players who, quite frankly, play well every single week. Justin Rose rarely has a poor week. Paul Casey rarely has a poor week. Brian Harmon almost never has a poor week. You look at some of these players and you say, look, the writing's on the wall. It's right there. These guys that don't have a bad week, uh, you can't expect them to all of a sudden play poorly at Augusta National this week. All right, so let's talk about this for a second. Uh, Jordan Spieth, 10 to 1. Rory McIlroy, 10 to 1. Justin Rose, 14 to 1. Uh, let's see, Paul Casey, 25 to 1. Um, Tiger Woods is 12 to 1. Uh, who did you just mention? You mentioned Brian. Brian Harmon. Brian Harmon. I'm not seeing. 40, go. 40 or 50? 80 to 1. 80, okay. 80 to 1 right now, Brian Harmon. So you basically gave me like five guys, four of whom are pretty short odds, and there's probably not a ton of value on betting any of those guys um, at right. this point. And then you gave me one guy, Brian Harmon, where there's probably a ton of value because there's not a lot of people coming in to bet Brian Harmon at 80 to 1. Mm-hmm. If you look at the, the middle of that, the middle of the odds lineup, you're talking about, say, 40 to 80 to 1. Who on that list stands out to you? I can give you some names if you don't have it in front of you. I, I don't have it in front of me, but I'm going to give you a couple of names that are probably fitting that profile. Uh, Patrick Cantlay is a kid that I, I love. I, he may be even a little uh, a little higher than 80 to 1, but he is, uh, he's got a ton of game. He is, and, and I'm writing an article for later this week on uh, why certain players play well at Augusta National. It's not necessarily what you think. And one of the reasons I wrote about Bubba Watson is, okay, everyone says he hits it a long way and he can curve the ball left and right, and so that's why he plays well at Augusta. Okay, yeah, I buy that. But I always look at, look, Bubba is uh, – has been self-diagnosed with ADD and Bubba loses focus on the golf course. And when Bubba is in a place like Phoenix where fans are yelling at him and they're right on top of him from the gallery ropes, 
he has trouble absorbing that. He has trouble dealing with all of those outside interferences, whereas at Augusta, first of all, uh, those galleries are further back than they are at any other tournament. And secondly, uh, the people there, for obvious reasons, are much more respectful than they are any other week on the PGA Tour. And I think that really uh, plays into the fact that he's played so well at Augusta over the years. Uh, I think it impacts how he performs. And I look at Patrick Cantlay, and I say he is a very introverted kid. He is, uh, he is not outgoing. He's not a guy who's going to play to the gallery. He's a guy who is all about golf all the time. I, I played at his club uh, about a month and a half ago in California and heard a few stories about him. And uh, even amongst the people that he knows well at that club, he just gets in a cart and goes out and plays golf and wants to play the best golf possible on a Tuesday during an off week at his home club. So uh, that is the most important thing to him. But I think that environment, the, the Augusta National environment, suits his personality really well. So uh, I know I'm lingering on Cantlay a bit, but uh, I really think he's going to have a strong week. If you want a, a really deep sleeper, uh, just as I was talking about uh, Rose and Casey and Harmon being guys that kind of show up every week, if you look at Dylan Fratelli, the South African plays primarily on the European tour, uh, played at the University of Texas with Jordan Spieth, uh, very, very nice kid. I got a chance to speak with him last year at the PGA Championship for a while, and uh, very bright, intelligent kid. Um, you look at his results over the past six months, and there's no off week. He hasn't missed a cut in there at all. Uh, he, he doesn't take a week off. He doesn't, uh, you know, kind of give up at all. He doesn't. You know, hey, he's in 48th place. There are a lot of players out there. We don't want to believe it, but there are a lot of players. Hey, I'm in 48th place after the first round. You know what? Let me just bag it tomorrow so I can get some rest this weekend and go to the next one. And I don't see that from Dylan Fratelli. So, uh, again, just like those other guys who are maybe on a different level than him, I think if you're looking for a safe, low-cost option, maybe in DFS, uh, of a guy to at least make the cut and give you some value, Dylan Fratelli is a guy that I don't see having a bad week. All right, so uh, Cantley's at uh, 100 to 1. And Fratelli, these are all from golfodds.com, by the way. Jeff Sherman, who's the bookmaker at the Westgate forever. He's been into golf longer than anybody else has. He's got a website, golfodds.com. You can follow him on Twitter, at golfodds. Uh, he's got Fratelli at 300 to 1. He's got uh, Cantley at, uh, Cantley at 100 to 1. Um, those are interesting names. I will tell you that Josh Perry, who's been covering golf for the Action Network as well, uh, does a really great job. He has written about Cantlay three or four times this year because it seems like he's always hanging around. Cantlay is one of these guys, Chad, who I, I almost I, – I hate to group it like this. I hate to stereotype, but sort of millennial golf Twitter, which is a niche of a niche of a niche, I understand, but they've sort of taken a liking, taken a shine to Patrick Cantlay and sort of think he's kind of the next big thing. He's the next Justin Thomas. He's the next maybe even Jordan Spieth. He, he could be as good as any of these guys. I, I think he, he lacks a certain something. And, again, it's less in his game and more in his personality. He is so introverted that uh, much like Martin Keimer uh, about five or six years ago who uh, rose to number one in the world and became number one and said, man, why are all these people looking at me and taking my picture and asking me questions all the time? Uh, I felt like Martin Keimer was way more comfortable being the 15th best player in the world instead, not having to deal with all the attention and still 
getting into all the tournaments that he wanted to and still making endorsement money and still living a very fine life, but not having to deal with uh, the glow of being in the spotlight. And I think Patrick Cantlay is very much the same way. And I, I just wonder if his personality will keep him from being as good as he could possibly be someday. Uh, unlike a Jordan Spieth who deals with it terrifically, a Rory McIlroy who deals with it terrifically, even uh, Justin Thomas gets a little uh, edgy, uh, a little bit touchy at times, but I, I think Justin Thomas deals with it really, really well. Uh, just in their personalities, uh, I just wonder if it's in Patrick Cantlay's personality to be a superstar someday. Well, you also touched on, you're doing this really interesting story for later in the week, uh, the conventional wisdom of particular players versus um, sort of what the reality is when you are at Augusta. Uh, mm-hmm. Share a little more detail on what you're, what the reporting is showing for that story. Yeah, I'll give you a couple of ideas. Uh, Jordan Spieth is uh, obviously a guy who figured out Augusta really early in his career, and that is uh, uh, that's a pretty uncommon thing. Usually the guys who succeeded Augusta have played it seven or eight or nine times and figured out the nuances and understand the little nooks and crannies of certain holes and know where to hit it and where not to hit it and can figure all that stuff out after some experience playing there. Jordan Spieth figured it out right away. And so the conventional wisdom is that Jordan Spieth's smarts, his strategy, his know-how has helped him be a a very good Masters player. And I I don't dispute any of that. I I think there is a lot to that, and I think that uh, the conventional wisdom is there because it is also some wisdom. And so that, uh, that certainly makes sense. But... I look off the course, uh, you know, and I look at, we're talking some insider info here, and I look at the fact that Jordan figured out some other stuff, and maybe it was the people around Jordan Spieth, and most players get one house. They don't stay in hotels during Masters Week. They get a house, but they'll get one house, and they'll have the wife and kids, and they'll have maybe the agent, maybe another player even, and just other people around. Jordan Spieth and his team get two houses. They're right down the street from each other. There's a party house, and Friends and family are there, and they've got a ping-pong table and a pool table and a big-screen TV, and everybody's kind of hanging out. And it's a great place for Jordan to go after a round and decompress and get away from the golf and not even have to think about the Masters. But he also has this other house, which is just his. And I assume maybe his fiance will be there this year as well. But he's able to go there and focus, whether it's before the round or after the round, he can at least be alone. He can get away from all those other people. I don't think a lot of players have that. And I'm surprised that more players haven't picked up on this and said, you know what? Okay, I'm going to pay an extra 20 grand, 30 grand, whatever it is to rent one more house for the week. But if it means the difference between me finishing in second place and finishing in seventh place, uh, that's going to be a huge difference in the size of the paycheck. So it's probably going to be worth it for me. So I, I don't know any other players that have picked up on that, but. Uh, I, I think it gives Jordan a, a big advantage. I think it's uh, hugely beneficial for him to have those two different houses where he can go to one and, and just sort of hang out with family and friends, have a beer, decompress, uh, just sort of get away from the golf. But then when he needs to get into focus mode, he can go back to his house and not have everybody around, not have the TV blaring, not have music on, and just be by himself and focus. What are these guys just cheap? Like it, it, it's such a no-brainer. I can't believe this is the one guy who's figured that out. Do you know what I mean? I, maybe maybe there are a couple more out there that do it. I I just haven't heard of anybody else doing that, Chad. And I 
I'm surprised that more haven't figured out the fact that Jordan does it and he's had early success and maybe I should do it too. That just floors me. All right. So we've covered the people at the top of the odds leaderboard. We've covered the people that could be sleepers. We've covered Tiger. We've covered form. Do you know what we haven't covered in this podcast yet? What's that? A little little segment we call You Bet Your Life, (laughs) which is you are going to tell me the biggest risk you've ever taken and how it played out. So tell me, Jason Sobel, new employee of the Action Network, golf writer extraordinaire. Tell me about the biggest risk you've taken in life and how it worked out. Well, I'm hoping today, first day on the job, isn't the biggest risk I've ever taken. Um, I got to tell you, you went all in on this one, buddy, and it is freaking (laughs) scary. I've been doing it for six months, and boy, is it scary. Oh, good. Thanks, man. It makes me feel way better. (laughs) This is the lock of the year. This this I'm not worried about. I mean, I I don't get a whole lot of locks in life. This one's a lock. So, uh, no, this is great. I... Look, I, I've always sort of looked at life as kind of a gamble anyway. I mean, everything you do, whether you say, hey, I want to get the, the steak or the chicken, you're sort of gambling with one being better than the other. And, uh, and whatever you do in life, in part, is a gamble, which I think uh, draws so many of us to, uh, to betting on sports and playing DFS and, uh, and all these other things. Because, uh, look, uh, that's what we're doing every day in our lives anyway. So I, I think we always place some risk. I'm going to tell you, I know this probably isn't a huge risk, but this is my favorite gambling story. I was in Las Vegas when I was, boy, I had to have been 23 years old. I think it was 1998. I think we're talking like 20 years ago. Um, And I was in Vegas with a buddy and I'm a big soccer guy in that I play soccer. I like soccer a lot. I don't know a whole lot about international soccer. I might've known a little bit more then, but uh, I, I don't know a whole lot about it now. If a soccer game's on, I'll sit down and watch. But uh, I don't know all the players. I don't know everything that's going on. But I, I understand the game pretty well. I still play on a few different teams. So, in any case, the World Cup's going on as I'm in Las Vegas, and I'm with a buddy. And Spain has a game in, in the first round. And I said, man, they're playing, they're playing Slovenia. Boy, I've heard Slovenia's really good. They got a couple of these players I know. I, I think they're going to take them. They're like, yeah, they're they're a, a goal and a half underdog. Let's take them outright to win. Let's throw like three or four hundred bucks on it. I mean, at the time we're you know starving young kids who are uh, making a pittance, uh, you know, and trying to go go to Vegas on the cheap. And we're like, hey, let's win some real money on this thing. So we take uh, Slovenia, and we stay up till four in the morning Vegas time, and we put this game on. We're like all fired up about it, and we're sitting there watching. Spain scores two goals. In the first 10 minutes, and I turned to my buddy and go, you know what? I think I'm in Slovakia. <laughs> um, so that, that'll, that'll teach you. That, that'll teach you to do a little research. You've got to at least know your Slovenians from your Slovakias. Let me tell you something. That is a really cute story. Charming, touching. But if that's the biggest risk you've ever taken in your entire life, on no. anything, on anything, then you need, to, you, need to, you need to take more risks other than, you know, throwing away a brilliant career at ESPN to come join us at the Action Network, which really, that's like become cliche because I already did it. But like, there has to be a risk you've taken in your life where you're like, boy, this could go either way. And I just don't know. Now you're putting me on the spot. I, I thought I could tell you a cute little gambling story from 20 years ago. and. We'd move on, and, and you're going to let me uh, 
let me do that. I, Welcome to it, brother. We don't let anybody off easy. Yeah. No, like? I, boy, I'm, I'm trying to think. I mean, I, you know, job-wise, you know, I, I, I've made a habit of sort of moving around a little bit. I know I've, I've spent a lot of time at ESPN, but I, I jumped to Golf Channel and moved to Orlando, Florida when I didn't know anybody in the city and moved down here with my family seven years ago and uh, then jumped back to ESPN. So, like I said, I – even the risky ventures, I don't look at them as risks. I look at them as opportunities. And so I, I don't see any of this as saying, boy, uh, you know, this is, uh, this is a big risk we're taking. It might not work out. I say, eh, it's a good opportunity. And, and, and if something doesn't work out, you just figure it out afterwards. I, you know, I've never been averse to that. You know what? That was a really good answer because I like that attitude. Thank you. You're off the hook, Jason Sobel. Because you, know you, you also have to go back to work. Like, I know you've got about eight things that I've asked you to do for Master's Week. And so, uh, and then I made you do a podcast in the middle of all of it. So welcome to the Action Network. Go do great things. Uh, we're expecting nothing less. And we're thrilled you've joined us. Chad, I can't be happier about it. Um, I, I've got one question for you before I leave. Does this count okay. as a lunch break or do I still get half an hour to eat after this? No, you can take 10 minutes. But Man. while you're doing it, I think you Man, should be calling. You guys are gonna work. I, th- I think you should call Tiger while you're eating. Just at least text him. Just get some, you know, make sure remind him of who you are and where you're going and what you're doing, and that you're gonna need him at some point. You know what? You joke about that. I probably need to send a text to some of Tiger's handlers. Maybe maybe not Tiger himself, but at least Tiger's handlers, and just kind of give him a heads up on where I am and what I'm doing. So uh, go I get actually it, will take you up on that. I know you're kidding, but I am actually gonna take you up on that and go do that right now. I never kid. I only give brilliant ideas and direction. That's all I do. Yes, you do. All right, man. Thank you. Thanks, buddy.